Welcome to Today on Broadway for Thursday, April 12th, 2018. I'm Broadway World's Matt Tamanini. I'm Broadway World's Julie Musbeck. And I'm the theater throwback's Daniela Parcell. Guys, thank you for being here. James is not here because he is getting his fetch on, or I guess it is a Wednesday, so maybe he's wearing pink. He is out at the August Wilson Theater seeing Mean Girls, so hopefully he'll be talking about that on This Week on Broadway, or maybe I'll get him to spill some beans on tomorrow's episode. So everyone doing okay? I feel like we're kind of making this a, a Thursday show habit with the three of us with James off doing stuff. I like it. It's yeah. fun. Yeah, girl power on a, on a Wednesday night recording. <laughs> yeah. All right, Julie, let's see what we've got in the news today. All right, so we're starting with some early reviews that we've caught on the Broadway revival of Children of a Lesser God. Yeah, you're right. We are a little early into this. Uh, we're recording around 8.30, so we only have a handful of, of reviews, but they're from some fairly respectable publications. So we'll go through those. And again, as always, if anything dramatically changes, we will uh, let you know on tomorrow's show. But just in case you are unaware, the Broadway revival of Children of a Lesser God opened last night on Broadway at Studio 54. It was directed by Tony winner Kenny Leon and stars Joshua Don't Call Me Pacey Jackson and Lauren Ridloff, along with ER Emmy winner Anthony Edwards, Drama Desk nominee Keisha Lewis, and others. The show, if you're unfamiliar, is basically centered on a school for the deaf where a teacher begins to have uh, a relationship with a former student who has decided not to go off into the larger world and stay behind as a cleaning woman at the school. Now let's get into these reviews and warning you, it's uh not looking so good. First off, Matt Winman from AM New York said, quote, The underwhelming revival does the play no favors with a slick, angular, and metallic visual design that unnecessarily calls attention to itself. It also suffers from being played on the wide stage of Studio 54 instead of a more intimate venue. Adam Feldman from Time Out New York, who gave the show two out of five stars, says that not only did it suffer from these physical limitations, but also from some of the actual content in the show being done almost 40 years after it was originally written. For a play that includes a great deal of sign language, the Broadway revival of Mark Medoff's Children of a Lesser God is maddeningly heavy-handed. Time has been unkind to this 1979 drama about a confused and defiant deaf woman and the would-be heroic speech therapist who romances her. David Rooney from The Hollywood Reporter said, quote, Leon's sluggish production does eventually gather some steam in the second act, expanding beyond the banal romantic focus of impassioned teacher James Leeds and reluctant student Sarah Norman into more complex issues. When it tightens its focus on the rights of deaf people to choose the terms on which they interact with the hearing world, weighing the virtues of American Sign Language, lip reading, and speech with conflicting ideologies, you can see why this was an important work back in its time. Of course, as I said, if there's anything published uh, later tonight that's dramatically different, especially if it comes from the New York Times, we will let you know. But unfortunately, guys, this seems to be a, a disappointing miss for a show that I think still could have been you know, fairly impactful and poignant in today's society when we're diff dealing with all the differences between people. You just have to think back to the production of Spring Awakening just a few years ago that obviously also included a, a lot of sign language. I feel like that translated no pun intended, a much more impactful, dramatic experience than apparently this one seems to. Yeah, I think it's kind of unfortunate that it doesn't sound so great. I thought it had a lot of potential being, you know, something that feels like it could be so emotionally moving as a romance and then still have that statement about something like 
the deaf versus hearing, that kind of thing. Did they update it a lot? Because 1979 feels like a very different time than right now. Yeah, no, it is. is, From what I understand, it's still set in that time. I'm not 100% sure about that. That's a good question. But I don't think that the text itself has been changed much, if at all. That feels like it could be a mistake. I don't think that anything surrounding this issue in 1979 would apply today. Well, and also I feel like this, the, the the deaf versus hearing communities, that also could be and probably is some sort of metaphor for things larger in our society with people that feel alienated for one reason or another. Kenny Leon, who's a director that I have a ton of respect for, um, not only for his work on Broadway, but on screen. And I've seen a number of pr- productions at his uh, theater in Atlanta, whether he directed them or not. I, I feel like that's a missed opportunity if you aren't able to translate that separation of people and alienation of people to something larger going on in society today, that's probably something that would have helped this production a lot. I think a lot of people seem to think that staying true to how it was written and presented in its original time is, you know, staying true to the playwright's, you know, original intent. But I also feel like every production needs to, while staying true to the text, obviously without making unauthorized changes, trying to put it in the context of the society that's seeing it. And it feels like that's not being done here. So hopefully we're wrong and some other critics come out and have better things to say. But um, I was hoping for more from this, if nothing else, than I'm somebody of the age that grew up with Dawson's Creek going on. You know what? I would also argue if you're not going to update the text on something like this, then maybe it's time to find something original that deals with the same issue. I don't know if going back and just pulling something that's already done and putting it on stage again makes sense in that kind of situation. Well, I don't know that it needs to have updated text, but at least an updated perspective. And I feel the same way for something like Carousel. They're cutting the crap yeah. out of that thing over uh, at the Imperial. But I, for me, I don't feel like they understand why they're doing it. And maybe that goes to what you're saying too, Julius. You can put it up, uh, you know, and with the exact same words, as long as you have a different perspective on why you're doing it than has been done in the past. Yeah, I agree. I think that makes a lot of sense. All right, cool. We've solved all of Broadway's problems. There we go. We <laughs> should get special Tony Awards or, ah. you know, just invited to the show. That'd be yeah. great. We're going to get to that. Don't worry. All right. So up next, Elaine May, Michael Sarah, and Lucas Hedges are going to lead Kenneth Lonergan's The Waverly Gallery. Yeah. Yesterday, Scott Rudin announced that Kenneth Lonergan's Pulitzer Prize finalist memory play The Waverly Place, or I'm sorry, The Waverly Gallery. Is Waverly Place a TV show? Yeah, that sounds Disney. familiar. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the well. Selena Gomez show. All right. Just the other day I said I had, <laughs> when James and I were talking about the movie of In the Heights, I said I had no idea who Selena Gomez really was, but apparently I did. Anyway, uh, Kenneth Lonergan's Pulitzer Prize finalist memory play, The Waverly Gallery, will be receiving its Broadway premiere later this year. And believe it or not, that wasn't anywhere near the biggest news to come out of this announcement. Let's start with a cast. Legendary comedian, actress, and writer Elaine May will be making her Broadway return more than 50 years after she last appeared on the Broadway stage. She originally came to fame as half of the comedy duo with Mike Nichols. And while his career led him to be one of the greatest directors of all time on either stage or screen, hers led her to become a screen and play writer who's twice been nominated for an Academy Award. And the two continued to work together throughout the years, most notably on one of the films that May was uh, nominated for an Oscar for. However, 
May was last on Broadway in 1966. This would be a good theater throwback, Daniela, in a play <laughs> that never actually officially opened called The Office. No relation to the TV show uh, of the same name. Since then, though, she has had three plays that she's written come to Broadway, most recently, relatively speaking, in 2011, starring Marlo Thomas. However, she's a legend and she's one of the reasons that I'm most excited about this. But she's probably the least well-known member of the cast that was announced yesterday, as she will be joined by Academy Award nominee Lucas Hedges and screen A minus, A B plus lister Michael Sarah. The show will be Hedges' Broadway debut after he was nominated for an Oscar for Kenneth Lonergan's Manchester by the Sea, and the show will be Sarah's third on Broadway, all of them written by Lonergan, as he's currently starring in Lobby Hero at uh, the Helen Hayes Theater right now. But that's not all the exciting news. As one of the hottest directors in New York, Lila Neugebauer will make her Broadway debut in the show, which will begin performances at the Golden Theater on September 25th. The play is described thusly, The Waverly Gallery is about the final years of a generous, chatty, and feisty grandmother's battle against Alzheimer's disease. Gladys is an old-school lefty and social activist and longtime owner of a small art gallery in Greenwich Village. The play explores her fight to retain her independence and the subsequent effect of her decline that it has on her family, especially her grandson. Now, Manchester by the Sea wasn't exactly my bad guy. It's a little too uh, a, a, a little too bleak for me. But I really liked Lobby Hero, and this one just seems to have all of those different incredible factors coming together. So I'm really, really excited to see this cast with this director and this playwright in a show later this year. I'll be honest, I don't know anything about any of this, but if you say it's interesting and that I should know, then I'm interested. Do you not know who <laughs> Michael Sarah or Lucas Hedges are? I know who Michael Sarah is, and I'm not a fan, but I don't know who Lucas Hedges is. Did you see Lady Bird? No. Okay, never mind. That's the, the he was uh, nominated <laughs> but again I this year. I heard it was amazing. Yes, so. he was he was in that as well. Daniela, can you save us? Do you know who Lucas Hedges is? No, pretty much everything Julie said. Retweet. <sighs> Retweet. <laughs> he's the redhead. He was the redhead. It was nominated for Academy Award. He's young. He's probably in between your guys' age, um, if not even younger. But um, he was really good in Manchester by the Sea and Lady Bird. So, uh, all right, well. Check out Lady Bird if you want. Manchester by the Sea, I can't recommend. It's it's too much of a gut punch, but Michelle Williams is great in it. Anyway, so I'm excited. So hopefully other people are just as excited and maybe I'm showing my age, but uh, just the fact that Elaine May is in it is super cool. Okay, so let's move on to some other big news. Actors Equity begins a campaign for a new ensemble Tony Award. Yeah, they actually it's actually two different Tony Awards, which we'll talk about. But yesterday, AEA launched a campaign to convince the American Theater Wing to add two new Tony Award categories, Best Chorus in a Musical or a Play and Best Ensemble in a Musical or a Play. AEA's logic is that these categories would recognize all equity performers who appear on a Broadway stage, not just principals. In conjunction, they launched a website, everyoneonstage.com, and asked fans to sign a petition of support. Equity President Kate Schindel said in a release, quote, Today, the equity members who work in the chorus and ensemble are often expected to be able to do it all act, sing, dance, even play one or more instruments. It's not an exaggeration to say that the ensemble is frequently the hardest working group on the stage. These new Tony categories would help ensure that every one of the performers who appear on stage can have their talent and efforts recognized. Now, just in case you aren't sure what the difference between the two categories would be, 
equity actually has a kind of a con- convoluted, confusing definition of chorus, but it's basically a group who sings or dances, whether that's in a musical or play but doesn't speak. And the ensemble is basically the entire company, including the principals. Now, Julie and Danielle, I have been on record on this and other podcasts saying that I am totally for giving as many awards as possible to as many deserving people as possible. But my gut tells me that if the wing was to do this, which I would pretty much support in all different facets, I would imagine, though, that the Tony would have to go to the production rather than each of the individual people, because I don't think that the wing wants to have all 30 to 40 people in a musical being able to say that they're Tony winners. However, if they could say that they were a member of a Tony winning ensemble, I think that's fair. Where Julie, where do you come down on this? What do you think about doing this and how they would do it? Okay, well, first of all, I'm going to sign the petition right away because I think this is long overdue. I can think of a million shows I've seen where the ensemble is honestly stand out. I mean, Hamilton alone, those guys, I was most impressed with the ensemble in Hamilton when I saw it. Yeah. And you don't even love that show all that much. I don't, but that's what I remember most about it is the ensemble is just unbelievable. As far as who would get it. Yeah. I think each individual person should get a trophy and I think it should say best ensemble for whatever show. So maybe not like not individual names, but I think they should all get their own trophy. So, but do you think that, you know, my favorite ensemble person, Cameron Adams, if if My Fair Lady were to win this year, do you think Cameron Adams, who she has a few individual solo singing lines, but doesn't have a character, do you think she should be able to say that she is a Tony winner or just that she was part of a Tony winning ensemble or chorus? I think you kind of have to say you're part of it because that's the nature of an ensemble is the whole team aspect. You have to represent yourself as a whole. So I don't think that would be a bad way to put it. I don't think that would be an insult to her or anything. Okay. I think that's I think it's part of the recognition is saying I was part of this group of people who were exceptional. I like that. Yeah, that's a really good way to look at it. Daniela, you come from an arts administration background. That's what you're getting your degree in. Are there any other Tony categories in addition to these that you'd like to see included or added at some point? Um, so I, I really like the idea of a best ensemble award. I feel like it's kind of been bubbling for a while and I'm glad there's finally a push, especially with equity to get this recognized. Um, in terms of other ones to add, I don't know. I've heard, I've heard people talk about like a best replacement award, which I think in theory is a good idea. I know that there's no way you could get Tony voters to see every single replacement of a Broadway show. Um, I, I like the idea, but it's not realistic. Yeah, and I think you're right. The first time I really heard, because there used to be one, just for like a year or two, and then they realized how hard it was. But then like when Reba McIntyre went into Annie Get Your Gun, people were talking about they should give, you know, do that award again for her. But you're right. With all of the shows that they already have to see, every show has, when a show opens, everybody's going to be there for the most part for the first, however, six months or whatever. When you're dealing with replacements, though, you theoretically could have to see a new cast member every few months. Because like even let's take Hello, Dolly, for example, if people went and saw Bernadette Peters and Victor Garber when they first went in, they, in that first month or so, they would have to then go back to see Santino Fontana. And it would just be too difficult on the Tony nominators mm-hmm. um, and voters to do that. But I do think in and theory... And what would happen when you get to like a long running show? You even take yeah. something like Waitress, would they have to have seen every single person yeah. who took over? <laughs> I mean... I love the idea, but yeah, the logistics of it are just a little fuzzy. And then it's like, Absolutely. where do you draw the line? Do you say first replacements are the only ones who are eligible? Because that seems a little unfair. I don't yeah. know. I like the idea, though. 
Yeah, I think a, a lot of times what they, the idea would have to be draw the line at first replacements. But still, you know, the contracts don't match up when people leave. You know, Taylor Trench goes to go do Dear Evan Hansen, but he was at a different time than when Gavin Creel left to go have back surgery. So, yeah, I, I think that's one that a lot of people would like and is probably deserved. But I think rather than going with an uh, with a replacement Tony, maybe in exceptional cases, do a special Tony for somebody who joins a show after it's already been up. I think a special Tony for like, you know, the drama league does one of their awards for just your contribution, unique contribution to theater. I think that would be a really cool one if they don't have it already. I don't think they do. Well, they have special Tonys, but there's no reason, rhyme or reason for how and when they give them out. It's just up to the committees. And so we have listeners who are on the various Tony committees. So if there are more specific rules that I can't think of off the top of my head, let us know. But that being said, I feel like we've just solved another Broadway problem. So again, done and done. We are fixing everything today on this episode, special episode of Today on Broadway, fixing all of Broadway's problems. (laughs) Boom, I'm going to drop the mic, except I'm not because you bought it for me, so yeah. I won't do yeah, that. Don't, please, please don't do that. That's not a cheap mic. <laughs> okay, so what do we have in this today's recommendations? All right, we've got two things. I'm just going to get through them here real quickly. The first is a video from an upcoming documentary about the late Howard Ashman, and it's, if you can handle it, I don't know if people are ready for this, it's a video of the late Jerry Orbach and the great Dame Angela Lansbury recording Be Our Guest from the original soundtrack of Beauty and the Beast. Jerry Orbach is one of my all-time idols and favorites, so seeing this was awesome. The other recommendation we have, it comes from The Interval, which we often talk about here on this show, and it's an interview from Victoria Myers, who's the editor over there at The Interval. She talked with Mean Girls star Taylor Louderman. Um, It was a really cool q and I've said before, I don't know if I've said it on the show or just two people, if I if you had to pin me down right now without knowing who's going to be in what categories, I would say that Taylor Louderman would be my pick for best featured actress in a musical for the Tonys this year. I thought she was fantastic in Mean Girls. There's some really cool questions. Um, Victoria asks Taylor about her own personal relationship with ambition in relation to Regina George. She asks her about what she's learned um, about leadership, you know, leading a second Broadway show as it opened, especially in light of being able to be around Tina Fey. So it's a really cool article. Did I sent it to you guys. Did you see anything in there that really stood out to you? There was one thing that I liked, especially um, when she asks how the character was similar to you. One of the things I, for some reason, remember from the commentary or the behind the scenes stuff from Mean Girls is that Tina Fey had said the only way to cast a mean girl is to find a really, really nice girl and cast her as that. And I feel like Taylor Lauterman, I think she fits that for sure, because when I first heard she was going to do it, I was like, oh, God, but she's adorable and so sweet. But it makes sense, I think. Yeah. And the same thing is often said about Rachel McAdams is one of the nicest people to work with in Hollywood. So that makes sense that those two would be in the scene in the same role because they do seem to have that sweet personality off stage and off screen. So, all right, Daniela, let's get into uh, this week's theater throwback. Uh, I gave you a suggestion for a future one later. That's not clearly <laughs> what it is. So what do you have for us this week? Yes. So today's throwback is something that a lot of people probably remember or at least 
uh, are aware of, but I just think it's so strange that I had to talk about it. So today we're going back to April 13th, 2000. This was the opening night of Michael John says The Wild Party at Broadway's Virginia Theater. Now, what's interesting about this show is that it was actually the second musical of the 1999-2000 New York theater season with the name The Wild Party. The other, written by Andrew Lippa, opened off-Broadway earlier that year. And it wasn't just some weird coincidence that they had the same name. Both were based on the same source material, Joseph Mancure March's poem, The Wild Party. The poem was written back in 1928, but was reissued in 1994, which kind of brought it back into the public eye. Weirdly enough, it caught the attention of the two musical theater composers around the same time, and since it was in the public domain, there was no need to obtain rights or negotiate with the poet's estate. It was absolutely possible for both of them to just write entire musicals based on the same exact thing without knowing what the other was up to. Now, despite being based on the same material, these two musicals are actually very, very different. They follow the same basic storyline of a vaudeville-era couple that decides to host, you guessed it, a wild party. Lippa's version focuses more on a few central characters and follows a traditional chronological two-act structure, while Acusa's version reads more as an ensemble piece and is structured as a series of separate, almost vaudeville-ish sketches. The two musicals diverge musically as well, with Lacusa's score feeling more traditional and Lippa's going more in a pop rock route. Unfortunately, neither show was too successful when it premiered. Lippa's version ran for a couple of months off-Broadway at Manhattan Theatre Club, but never made it to Broadway like they had hoped. Lacusa's show did make it to Broadway, as I said, but it closed after 68 performances. It did manage to pick up eight Tony nominations, though, including Best Musical, which is pretty impressive for such a short-lived show. Nowadays, both musicals have had pretty healthy lives in regional regional community and school theaters. Um, I've never seen a production, but I remember when I was younger being really confused because (laughs) there were like two wild parties and I just didn't. I didn't understand it. Um, but in 2015, Andrew Lippa's version was actually revived as part of the Encore's off-center season with Brander Victor Dixon and Sutton Foster in the leading roles. Now, I think it's really interesting how in the same season we got two musicals based on the exact same thing, and yet they were just so entirely different. So do either of you guys, I mean, I don't know how old you are, um, do you remember when these two shows surfaced or have a preference about which one you prefer? Uh, I remember. I haven't seen either of them uh, either, but I remember both of them being it, it, it happened, uh, I guess, my fir- my freshman year of college. And they both had such great cast. The one the Lippa version, which was off Broadway, had Tay Diggs and Jennifer Cody and Brian Darcy James and Adina Menzel and Julia Murney, uh, Stephen Pascal, uh, Megan Sakura, And then the one on Broadway, those people were kind of like the next generation. The one on Broadway was led by Eartha Kitt and Mandy Patinkin and Tanya Pinkins and Norm Lewis and Nathan Lee Green and Tony Collette. It just like they both had these people that were big for the theater community and then the the Lacusa version on Broadway had these people who were big names outside of it. And it it's very much a um one of those weird confluence of events. But um I know people who are very passionate about one side of the argument as to which was better and which <laughs> uh was worse. I don't personally have a preference. I d I don't I like both of the scores, but I haven't seen a production of either. But yeah, it's it's a, one of those really cool things. And it's a little similar to what we have this season where we have My Fair Lady and Pretty Woman. Obviously, you know, mm-hmm. not the exact same, but both are essentially Pygmalion. Obviously, My Fair Lady much more closely. True. Um, true, so it's yeah. not the exact same, but it's uh, it's 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 close. It's close. Yeah. 
Okay, Matt, what did we miss today? All right. In other news, here are some headlines that didn't make it into the main part of the show, but we wanted to make sure that you were aware of. First, the Broadway production of Kinky Boots announced a new trio of principals that will take over in the first week of May. Tyler Glenn, the lead singer of the band Neon Trees, will play Charlie. Carrie St. Louis, who just closed Cruel Intentions, the musical off-Broadway on Sunday, will play Lauren. And returning Jay Harrison Gee, who is currently starring in The Sting at Paper Mill Playhouse, will come back in the role of Lola. Also yesterday, the upcoming Broadway revival of Harvey Firestein's Torch Song announced that the entire company from the recent second stage off-Broadway production will join the previously announced Michael Urie in Mercedes Rule when the show begins performances in October. And finally, Tony winner B.D. Wong will lead the New York premiere of Lauren Yee's The Great Leap at the Atlantic Theater Company beginning on May 23rd. If you would like more information on any or all of these stories, please check out the show notes at broadwayradio.com. All right. Thanks for listening to Today on Broadway. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Broadway Radio. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at BWWMatt. And subscribe to Something Got Pop on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Daniela, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Daniela Parcell and on Instagram at Daniela Parcello. Well. Julie? I'm on Twitter at Julie Musback. All right. Thanks for listening today. Have a great Thursday. And James and I will be back to close out your week tomorrow. <laughs>